0: You can open up your Bibles with me to Titus. The letter to Titus from the Apostle Paul. We're going to be in Titus 3 this morning. And we're going to read the first three verses together. Titus 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this passage. Every word from you is inspired and helpful and instructive, and we pray that you would use even these verses, as short as they are, to grow us in godliness and to renew our minds in how we think about this life and how we think even about the worst sides of this life. We pray all this asking for your grace in Christ Jesus alone. Amen. How should a believer handle bad memories in their life? How should you, if you are a Christian, think through the most shameful and discouraging moments in your life? A bad memory has a definition that is this. A bad memory is the unwelcome recall of something in your past that brings guilt, shame, embarrassment, defeat, and even fresh temptation. A bad memory is the unwelcome recall of something in your past that brings guilt, shame, embarrassment, defeat, and fresh temptation even. Now, this, these bad memories may come from something that you have done, and they may also come from something that someone has done to you as well. And This is our topic this morning This is a passage that we kind of encountered in youth ministry. We're working our way through uh, the letter to Titus. And when I came to verse 3 of chapter 3, I was surprised and surprisingly encouraged by this verse about the believer's bad memories from their past. Now I do recognize that this is a tender topic to talk about bad memories bad memories are bad they are so easily triggered you return to a certain place and you are reminded not of all the good things that went on there but of all the shameful things perhaps that you did you run into a certain person in the hallway and suddenly memories come flooding back Perhaps you run into a certain calendar day, a certain holiday that may or may not be coming up, and all that you can remember is bad. Perhaps you smell a certain smell, or hear a certain song, or read a certain letter. Or a certain page from an old journal of yours that you should have burned years ago. Bad memories are easily triggered. Bad memories are hard to forget. They are like a rock in your shoe. Every time you step, you are reminded. They are like a scratch on that disc. Every time you come to this point in the song, you are reminded that it's there. They are like a pothole in that road. They always come back. And often with them comes back the defeat all over again, the embarrassment all anew, and even new temptations from bad, bad memories. Bad memories are evil reminders in a way because, like I said, you don't remember the things you want to remember. You don't remember your happy childhood. You don't remember your anniversary. You don't remember any of these things, but you do remember the things you wish you could forget. Your minds are treacherous in that way. So what does a believer do with bad memories? What is a Christian to do with the bad memories in their life? What are they to do with those things, those areas that they wish they could forget? Well, here's some bad advice on bad memories. Just to be clear, this is bad advice on bad memories. There is the well-meaning Christian advice. Hey, you shouldn't dwell on these things anymore. You should be past all of this. Doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible that you are to uh, forget the things that are behind and press on to the things that are ahead? You you shouldn't be like this anymore. You should be a super-Christian. You should be so consumed in the love of Christ that you forget everything in your past. Well-meaning. Or perhaps there's worldly thinking we could think about in this area. You should do everything you can to forget everything you can to remove such bad shameful memories you should cloud out the memory of them by putting in maybe new things new substances pursue drink pursue distraction pursue medication dull the pain so you cannot remember the past or maybe another form of worldly thinking would be, you're not to blame, you should blame someone else. You are the victim here. You should deal with your bad memories by thinking about all of the ways that other people are responsible for those bad things happening in your life. You should deal with it medically. You should, you should say, these things are something that was done to me, and they're not my fault. There's maybe another way. There's there's another form of worldly thinking, not just forget it, but maybe you should try a new approach to bad memories. Maybe you should just shamelessly embrace them. This is who you are. And instead of trying to run from who you are, you should be who you are. That is the world we live in today. Be shameless. Be guiltless. Embrace this. This is your identity. But all of this often leads to the same end defeat defeat and this is our final piece of bad advice for bad memories and it's not really advice that anybody's giving you but maybe your own self it's defeated defeated thinking well if you feel guilty you must be guilty you might as well return to that same old sin since you're thinking about it now it's inevitable See, this here is evidence why God doesn't love you and could never love you. This is probably the reason why all of that bad stuff is happening to you because you are like this. Be defeated. Just give up and give in all over again. Now, there are problems with these solutions. The problem basically is that the Bible doesn't call the believer to necessarily forget all of the bad things in their past. The Bible doesn't call you to be a super Christian with zero memories. That verse that is thrown around forgetting the things that lie behind that's actually from philippians three thirteen, where paul is refusing to trust in his own righteousness his own accolades his own achievements and instead of looking to his past he is pressing on in faith towards christ you are not called to be a super christian with no bad memories you are not called to be a christian even without any shameful memories The Bible actually has a lot to say about how the Christian remembers their past. And especially how they remember their shameful, sinful past. Before we get into it, a few uh, uh, caveats and clarifications here. I, I am not mainly here this morning speaking about how an unbeliever thinks about their past. You cannot claim any hope in your past because your past is still your present. You are still living in these realities today. This is a nightmare of your present. I'm here to speak about how a believer can think about their past, not how an unbeliever can think about their past. Also, the passage that's propelling this message, Titus 3.3, is primarily dealing with bad memories of the past from sin, your sin, and the lingering guilt that your sin produces. So that's going to be the primary frame in which I'm going to be approaching this. This is not a sermon about how to deal with innocent suffering in your life, although the Bible does address that area. Read the book of Job, look at the story of Joseph. We'll address that a little bit, but we're primarily going to be talking about how the believer deals with guilt from their own sin. And also, finally, I'm not here to defend or to defy some sort of view of psychology, although I do find their approaches and views on bad memories to be unsatisfactory and unhelpful. My aim here this morning is simply to level on you the truth of God's Word, what God's Word says about how the believer thinks about their past. Hear God's Word today about what and how you think That's my aim. That's my goal. Here's my main point this morning from this this message. And and this evening, we're going to continue on in this topic. But for, for now, we're going to simply say this. God doesn't want you to remove your past. But God wants you to redeem your past for His purposes. God has a purpose in your past, even your worst past, for greater Christ-likeness in your present. God doesn't want you to remove your past. He wants you to remember it in a redemptive way. Or to say it like this, if you forget and remove your past, you are inhibited in God's sanctification in your present. God wants to use your past, not lose your past. So, two quick questions about redeeming your past, redeeming your memory, your, your past. First off, what is it to have a redeemed memory? And, and number two, why should you want a redeemed memory? What is a redeemed memory first? And, and I must credit this to a little booklet I've been carrying around for, for 10 years now called uh, Bad Memories, Getting Past Your Past. It's a little booklet by um uh, the counseling ministry of acbc it's getting past your past by robert d jones it's been sitting on my shelf for forever and finally now that i entered titus 3 i pulled it off because i wanted to see does do we see this truth anywhere else that a believer thinks actively and intentionally about their past so this is nothing from me originally i stole all of this information but what is a redeemed memory? A redeemed memory is a bad memory that is reinterpreted by God's truth through the Holy Spirit. A redeemed memory is a bad memory that has been reinterpreted by the truth of God's Word through the Holy Spirit. That is what a redeemed memory is. If you want to redeem your memory, you must actively seek to interpret your past through god's truth actually this this is really what memory is do you realize that your memory is not a fact for fact shot on what happened and exactly how it happened your memory is your interpretation of what happened and why it happened You're interpreting everything in your past, and all I want you to do today is to interpret your past as God interprets it for you in Scripture. That is a redeemed memory. Viewing your past through God's Word instead of through other forms of interpretation like your feelings or your weaknesses, or the culture around you. No, you choose to view your past and redeem your past through God's truth. That is what a redeemed memory is. Well, why should you want to redeem memory? Well, quite simply, I would say a redeemed memory is, in one word, valuable. Valuable in the life of the Christian. Now, let me give you five reasons why it's valuable, and then we're going to get to Titus 3. So, just warning straight up. The introduction of this sermon is going to feel a lot more like the sermon, and the sermon's going to feel a lot more like the introduction. So, take notes accordingly. Five reasons why a redeemed memory is valuable to the Christian in the Christian's life. Number one, a redeemed memory is valuable for faith. A redeemed memory is valuable for growing in your faith. A redeemed memory is valuable for strength in your faith. You see, bad memories are challenging truth. They're challenging truth about God. They're challenging the truth that God is good. They're challenging the truth that God is present. That's what bad memories are challenging. They're challenging the Christian's faith to believe in God. The Christian's faith is challenged by the worst conceivable evils in this world, and you are forced to either interpret those evils in one of two ways, to to listen to your memories in and of themselves, or to actively interpret your memories through the truth of God's Word. If you will redeem memory, you must believe persistently, Truths about God. And the number one truth you must believe about God in a bad memory is this God was there. That's what you must believe. God was there. He was not asleep, He was not hard of hearing, He was not out of the office. He was not predisposed by other personal problems. He was not distracted by someone else in this world. No, God was there when that happened. A bad memory tests your faith, but by testing it, it strengthens it because it demands that you answer these questions about who your God is. A redeemed memory then is the triumph of your faith. A redeemed memory holds on to psalms like Psalm 139, right? Where can I go from your presence? Even in the womb you are there. Even in darkness, darkness is as light to you. God was there. Think about the story of Joseph. Joseph in, in, in Genesis chapter 50, right? A little context here. Joseph, Joe Jr. as I like to call him, daddy's boy he had his problems yes he was a spoiled brat let's just be all honest about joseph he was a spoiled brat he was the youngest well not youngest but he was close to the youngest and i wasn't the youngest so i can judge him that way (laughs) he enjoyed parading his father's favoritism in front of his brothers right joseph had his problems but the treatment that joseph received was evil right His brothers took him, threw him into a pit, and sold him into slavery. And after he was dragged away to Egypt, he was unjustly accused for something else and spent two whole years in prison. Now talk about bad memories from evil done to him. And these bad memories could shape Joseph's theology, couldn't they? Joseph's feelings might want to play interpretation here. Joseph's feelings might suggest a response of bitterness, rage, anger, or perhaps pride. Look at how I have achieved all of this in my life, despite what men have done to me. But what happens when his brothers arrive? He certainly didn't forget about what they did to him, right? In fact, Genesis 50, verse 15, they are fearful once Jacob dies, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and returns back to us all the evil which we dealt against him? And then the the narrative continues to say, then Joseph said, and, and there's tears in his eyes, and I imagine that those tears are a mixture of both gratitude for their sorrow for sin, but also a memory for the consequences of their sin in his life. And Joseph says in 50 of Genesis... Chapter 50, 19-20, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Notice that. He had entrusted long ago this evil done to him, and it was from God. And he was trusting God even in this moment. And then, here's the famous verse, Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day and to keep many people alive a redeemed memory can look at god's sovereignty and trust it can look at god's providence in evil and trust in it God is sovereign, he's in control of all things, and God works in providence. He governs all things for his good purpose in his glory and our good. That's what Joseph's saying. Look at: had you not done this, and God not done this even through your evil, what has happened here today wouldn't happen here today. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The believer similarly looks to Romans 8.28, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. A, a, A redeemed memory is valuable then for faith. But secondly, a redeemed memory is valuable for deterrence. A redeemed memory is valuable in your life for defense and deterrence. Let me explain it this way. A Christian's memory of their sin of the squalor of their past perhaps motivates them to never return that way again. There's this interesting proverb that my dad used to always tell me and I always found the visual very intriguing. It's Proverbs 26:11. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who returns to his folly. Think about that in return in terms of memory, right? A fool is someone who doesn't remember. A fool is someone who suffers again and again and again because he does not remember. He, he has forgotten the stench and the smell. And the putrid pile calls his name again and again and again because he doesn't remember. But the Christian even with the slightest fragrance of temptation, seize the putrid pile for all that it is, and it runs, and they run the other way. Because they are wise. And they say, I see you, temptation. I see your schemes and your wiles and what you're trying to perform, and I hate it and flee. Romans six twenty. Similarly says, uh, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then having from the things of which you are now ashamed? Notice, it's not that the Christian forgets their past. They look on it with shame because those days were days of slavery. The, the Christian sees their former life as a freedom to only sin. And an inability to please God. That's what it was like. It was slavery to sin. But now that that we have received grace upon grace in faith, we have the ability to not sin. We can pursue God in obedience. These things that cause us to be ashamed give us gladness in the grace that we have received in Christ Jesus. And here's the news of Romans 6, right? Right? You've been given grace, but this grace does not lead you to continue in sin that grace may abound. This grace is gracious and wonderful because it gives you the ability to, what? Not let sin reign in your members, but present your bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. A redeemed memory is valuable for deterrence. A redeemed memory also is valuable for thanksgiving. Believers who remember their sin thank God more, praise God more, love God more. That is a Redeemer who remembers their sin. And if you don't believe me, flip over to uh, Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1. This is Paul, and notice, Paul remembers his past in vivid detail under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Through the interpretation of God, Paul remembers his past. And notice how he thinks about his past in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he regarded me faithful, putting me into his service. Even though I formerly was a blasphemer and persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul remembers his past in vivid detail. And notice this. Paul, every time he remembers his past, can't get over the mercy of God because of it. It causes him to, to exalt and thank God for his grace and his mercy. This is the, the redeemed memory at work. You could almost say the believer is thankful for their past because every time their past comes to them again, they are again reminded of the grace and mercy of their God. Their past is an opportunity for praise and thanksgiving and not guilt and despair. Or flip over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Remember the time Jesus taught the Pharisees how to tell who was truly forgiven? It was how their memories worked. Now, Luke chapter 7, a little shout out here. I'm going to steal some of this from Pastor Steve's message from First Watch. You should really listen to it. It's on humility, and it was terrific. But technically, I preached this sermon on Thursday before that Saturday, so this is still mine. (laughs) Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was asking him to eat with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined a table, and behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner... And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept weeping and wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, saying, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, just say say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he graciously forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Little. Now, this is an odd situation that makes you probably a little uncomfortable. Who is this woman? Why is she in this house? Creepily standing behind Jesus while he's eating this food. Well, probably what's going on here? The this was this was a uh, quite the social affair, and and probably this this dinner invitation would mean. Um, gathering in the largest space in the house, which would be the courtyard. There'd be lots of room, and this would be a public event, and everybody in town would maybe want to come and just listen and hear the conversation of this table. So this is why all these people would be here. And it it was important for the host to treat all of his honored guests in a certain way. He was to wash their feet. He was to greet them with a kiss. He was to show them honor. But he does none of that for Jesus. Why? Well, because this dinner invitation had nothing to do with love for Jesus. It was a total trap. We're going to bring Jesus in here and completely shame him socially so that everybody knows that we don't like him. And then everybody else will distance themselves from him because they like us. And this woman when she hears jesus is there she goes because she's heard about this jesus this is the man who receives sinners and welcomes them and when she sees their treatment of him she is abhorred astounded she can't stand the fact that someone would treat someone like this in this way And in this way, she proves her spiritual status, as Jesus says. This woman has been forgiven much. Why? Because, or she loves much, because she's been forgiven much. And and this is the way it is with a believer, right? A redeemed memory is simply this. You can't get past the fact that God has forgiven you because you know yourself so well. This leads to selfless living. This leads to prodigal generosity. This leads to powerful devotion in your life. A redeemed memory is fine with having shame attached to your name because you're attached to Christ's name. Because it is full of thanksgiving. It says, I do not deserve to be called a Christian. It seems though, side implication here, some Christians love Jesus More, because they have sharper memories. A thankful memory is a profound thing in the believer's life. I like to call it, well, I'm a a high school pastor, so I lower myself to their level, of course. This is not my level, this is their level. I like to call a thankful heart a cheat code in the Christian's life. It's a cheat code. You want to unlock all sorts of potential in your life? Get some thankfulness in your heart. Yeah, I don't have enough time to go through this, but just look at some of these verses and what they promise. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, look it up later. Thanksgiving in prayer is in a, direct, a direct attack against anxiety in your heart and in your life. The person who prays full of thanksgiving has less fear and anxiety in their life. Or think about Ephesians 5, 3-4. through 4. Thanksgiving is the direct attack against the root issue of lust in your life, life, which is covetousness. The more thankful your heart is, the less lustful your heart is. All to say, Thanksgiving is invaluable. Invaluable in the Christian's life. The person with the redeemed memory can't Think of their past once without thinking about Christ ten times. And it's a valuable thing. Fourthly, a redeemed memory is valuable for humility. You could say it this way, uh, the proud Christian should be ashamed of their poor memory. Back in 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says this, it's a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ is, Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. Humility. Oh, why did Paul think of himself as humble? as or, Sorry, as foremost? The foremost of sinners? I don't think it was because Paul had some super-inspired uh, revelation from God. Hey, Paul, by the way, you are the foremost of sinners. Seems like that would have kind of the opposite effect. It seems as though, and this is my suggestion, Paul thinks this way about himself because the closer and closer he gets to God's grace in Christ Jesus, the lower and lower he sees himself. And the greater and greater is his sin. The more he sees his Savior and the price that was paid for him, the lower his sin becomes and the more vile it is in his eyes. I am the foremost of sinners. Why? because this was the cost of my sin, Christ Jesus bleeding on the cross. He also says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You could say it this way, the redeemed memory is thoroughly reformed. No other theological system explains their passed to them, like the doctrines of grace. I am here by grace and grace alone. It's not because of something good I've done, but all because of God's grace and mercy towards me. A redeemed memory is profitable for humility. And a redeemed memory is finally valuable for usefulness. A redeemed memory is useful, and that's why you should want it. Those who see their past as it really is through the truth of God's Word and not through their feelings or their memories of their past are more diligent, more useful in the present. Notice how Paul in 1 Timothy 1.16 uses his past For this reason I was shown mercy, he says, so that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. A redeemed memory is a walking, talking demonstration of the grace of God. I am an example of God's patience. And if God can be patient with me, he can be patient with all. It's a source of hope, and it's a source of encouragement to others. It's a, you, you, you become an object of praise to God, not to you. A redeemed memory is useful for that reason, but it's also useful in another way. A, a redeemed memory is useful for energizing your efforts. Paul says, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, right after saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am, he says, I labored even more than others. When there is a heightened love for God in your life, a heightened thankfulness for God in your life, terrific work ethic results in your life. You have unending generosity, generosity, You have a willingness to lose everything to follow Jesus and to be a servant of Christ. This is really what the song is all about, right? All I have is Christ. It says this, the final verse, right? Now, Lord, I would be yours and yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life. In any way you choose, and let my song forever be, my only boast is grace. Flipping back over to Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 13 said this, right? We are looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness, and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Right? A redeemed memory makes you a person who is zealous for God. And this brings us right to the purpose for your memory that Paul has in Titus 3, verse 3. You see there, we we ran at it, Titus is Uh, Paul is writing to Titus here to instruct the churches, the young churches on the island of Crete. And here in 3, 1 through 2, he is encouraging Christians to pursue godliness, obedience, graciousness, gentleness before an unbelieving world. We know this because he's referring to their behavior towards rulers and authorities. He's referring to their behaviors towards other people who might be slandering them or trying to provoke a a, a wrathful response. He's calling them to be considerate in verse 2. And notice how he ends it there, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. This appears to be how you are to behave in godliness to those outside of your church. And notice the logic here that Paul has. Christians should be energized and should be shaped in how they act towards those people that are unkind and unjust to them based on how they remember and interpret their own past. Verse 3 4. He now provides a basis for all of these commands. Believers should live submissively, gently, peaceably before unbelievers, outsiders, for this very reason. And what is that reason? It's very emphatic. We were once ourselves. The verb choice tense he uses there is a imperfect, which you don't need to know, But that refers to action that is repeated and ongoing in the past. It's almost as if Paul brings this up in such a way as to remind them of the repeated nature of their past. Do you remember how we once continually were? See that? Your bad memories have powerful usefulness in your present. And they're motivating in good works. Now this brings us to the text of our sermon, verse 3. What are bad memories particularly? What bad memories are used here that are for godliness in our lives in the present? What is this badness that Paul wants us to remember constantly in our living? Let me provide you with just some of them in memory form. First memory you have is, I was living in sin's ignorance. I was living in sin's ignorance. This is a word, foolish, that refers to being dull-witted or unintelligent. And it it was often used by the elites in that society to refer to the uneducated class. Matter of fact, Paul seems to enjoy using this language to refer to unbelievers. It would be calling them know-nothings completely ignorant of the most important truths. And this tells you something, right? Because Paul refers to unbelievers this way often. In Ephesians 4, he refers to our lives as foolish in the past. And also here in Titus 3.3, 3, he's referring to the unbeliever's life as foolishness, uninformed. What is he saying? He's surely not saying that everybody else out there is stupid. He is saying that as smart as we are, perhaps, we are spiritually ignorant. We are missing something very important, the most important truths that is truths about God. We are foolish. We are ignorant. But don't be fooled by this word, foolish, ignorance. Ignorance here does not equal innocence. Because that leads to the next word that Paul uses. Notice, disobedient. Second memory the believer has is, I was living in sin's rebellion. This is very similar to Ephesians 4.18 once again, where rebellion of the heart is the basis of alienation from God. And notice what's going on here. Sin makes you rebel against all forms of authority. That's the nature of sin in your heart. And your spiritual problem here is addressed by Paul, right? Your spiritual problem is not that you have a God-shaped hole in your life or that you're not living up to your fullest potential. Your biggest problem is not even that you have done things in your life that displease God. Your spiritual problem is that you are disobedient from the heart. Your spiritual problem is that you are, by nature, born in personal rebellion to the God of the universe. And this personal rebellion of the heart leads to various actions of the mind and the body. Notice how Psalm 58.3 talks about it, the wicked are estranged from the womb. And those who speak falsehood wander in error from birth. And just in case you're tempted to think that they're talking about someone else, David himself says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I, David, was brought forth in iniquity. That very word in Hebrew, iniquity, refers to someone who is born a rebel against all boundaries in their life. That is what iniquity is. I'm constantly crossing boundaries. That is the individual by nature in their sin a rebel against God. I was living in sin's rebellion, Paul reminds us. Third, I was living in sin's slavery. We were deceived, enslaved. Something was leading us, deceiving us, enslaving us, telling us lies about the world and about ourselves. This is referring to most likely to the devil, the father of lies. Revelation twelve nineteen says the serpent is known to be the deceiver of the nations. 1 John five nineteen says this. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The devil controls the world by lies about themselves and about this world. But notice, Paul says specifically here, it's not the devil who is enslaving you though. You are deceived and enslaved, but it's not the deceiver who's enslaving you. Who's enslaving you? Your own sinful lusts and pleasures. That was your life. Now, obvious and open enemy. enemies are bad, right? You don't want an open and obvious enemy, but a dangerous, a much more dangerous enemy is a subtle and sneaky one hidden in the darkness pretending to be your friend by your weaknesses, and ruling you from within. That is what sin is doing. It is enslaving us through our lusts and through what we find pleasure in. And we were living in sin's slavery. And this leads us to the fourth memory that Paul reminds us of. I was living in sin's normality. Sin was normal in these days. I was spending my days in this way. That refers to a lifestyle. This was everyday life to me, enslavement to lusts and pleasures. And notice this is because sin's enslavement is from within. Turning your lusts and your pleasures towards these things. And that's why life seems normal. That's why sin seems normal. Because it is a desire from within. You are Spending your days in malice and envy, Paul really does not pull any punches. Malice refers to a baseness, a general ill will, a a mean-spiritedness towards you. By nature, he seems to suggest that our first thoughts towards others are evil and suspicious and resistant. And then he even says, we are spending our days in envy. We are greedy. We have greedy desires for what belongs to others. And this presents a very horrifying picture of normal life for the unbeliever, right? I am the only one who deserves special treatment. That is the the heart of the unbeliever. I deserve something that no one else deserves. Malice and envy. And all this accumulates in a final horrifying picture and a reminder of us by Paul, I was living in sin's ugliness. The word despicable there refers to someone who is loathsome to behold, a picture of something that turns your face away. And this is, we understand, right, the effects of unrestrained sin in your life, right? It makes you despicable. Despicable. As ESV says, hating and hating, hated and hating one another. The sin unrestrained in the life of the unbeliever is an ugly final result. Now, some of you maybe perhaps are are quick to say, oh, yeah, that's terrible. But that's not my testimony. My testimonies, thank the Lord, kind of boring. I didn't grow up in an evil home. I didn't grow up with rebellion in my heart, at least not that I knew of. I grew up in a Christian home. I don't ever remember not hearing the name of Jesus. I want you to see something here in Titus 3. Notice how Paul says this. He doesn't say, do all these things because you were once this way. He says, no, we should do all of these things motivated by the memory of who we all once were. Right? Paul joins with them. And it's not just a, hey, I'm going to pretend like I got your same problems here. No, when Paul looks at his heart, he sees the same problems. He sees the same ultimate sin, rebellion, even in his heart. Matter of fact, for illustrative purposes, I, I'm just going to read you really quick Philippians 3. Look at Paul's past. Paul wasn't like the Cretans at all. But uh, Philippians 3, verse 4, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he lists some inherited assets here. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Look at all of these inherited assets. I grew up in the right place, with the right family. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, some of you may be remembering in your Old Testament, Benjamin's kind of bad. Saul came from Benjamin. But did you also know that the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe that stuck around with Judah when all of the other tribes split? benjamin was a title of pride i'm of the tribe of benjamin one of the faithful tribes this is paul's inherited assets he is a hebrew of hebrews but also notice he's also achieved quite a few assets on his own as well he is of the law a pharisee as to zeal a persecutor of the church as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless what changed in paul How did Paul go from Philippians 3 to Titus 3? Well, because he encountered the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything that used to be an asset to him suddenly became a liability to him. That's God's righteousness, and everything else causes me to fall woefully short of the glory of God And the closer you get to the grace and love and kindness and grace and and, and loveliness of Christ, the humbler you go in your heart. The more you understand God's power and sovereignty, the greater becomes your foolishness. The more you know God's righteousness and holiness, the greater becomes your rebellion. The more you know God's grace, the greater becomes your slavery. And the more you know God's goodness, the greater becomes your ugliness. And even if your testimony is boring, it is not boring to you because you know the cost of your salvation. And it was Christ Jesus on the cross for you. Why do we see ourselves this way? God's Word reveals our sin as worse than we thought. And why do we see ourselves this way? God's word also reveals our salvation as better than we deserved. Notice what Paul also says. Titus 3, 4. We were that way, but when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Spirit. Not in me. Not in me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the preciousness of your truth that informs our past and re-informs it not just in the depths of our sin, but in the greatness of your grace towards us. And we pray now, as we come to this table, to remember and receive that you would burn these spiritual realities in our past into our hearts and minds. We are the miserable ones who do not deserve this treasure, but with trembling hands we take, and with humble lips we drink. Amen.